Fangraphs Audio once again. I'm Fangraphs contributor Carson Sestouli. On today's show, we have an interview with Charlie Wilmoth. Mr. Wilmoth is not only the editor of Buck's Dugout, the SB Nation blog for the Pittsburgh Pirates, he's also a PhD candidate in music composition at the University of California, San Diego. In the first part of the interview, we discuss the Pittsburgh Pirates, what it's been like to have been a Pittsburgh Pirates fan through many years of futility, how Mr. Wilmoth sees the right field, first base, and left field positions shaking out for the Pirates this year. In the second half of the interview, I asked Mr. Wilmoth about some of his academic pursuits. This interview with Mr. Wilmoth reminds us that many sabermetricians also have academic interests. Charlie Wilmoth studies music at University of California, San Diego, and he shares some of his thoughts on music composition in addition to his own version of white-hot baseballing analysis. Stay tuned for this conversation with Charlie Wilmoth here on Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to another edition of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Stooley. Once again, I am Carson Stooley, and I am here today uh, joined by Charlie Wilmoth. Charlie Wilmoth is the man in charge at BucksDugout.com, which is a SB Nation blog. He's also, interestingly to me, a PhD student, a PhD candidate at University of California, San Diego, where he studies violin. Charlie Wilmoth, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, well, I do want to ask you about the violin stuff. I want to. I think maybe we'll leave that to a little bit and get to some of the nitty gritty stuff with the uh, with the Bucks here. Uh, you are a Pirates fan, albeit one who lives in San Diego, uh, and you've seen numbers of years of mediocrity now. Um, uh-huh. Now, just uh, looking at some of the writing you do over there, you seem to be a sabermetrically oriented type, and I guess. I guess I'm curious, just in kind of a state of the team sort of thing, how satisfied you are right now with what we can call the Neil Huntington era in the Pittsburgh Pirates history, which you know uh, extends back to 2007, versus the other types of mediocrity you guys have experienced going back to, to 92, I guess you said, is the last time you even finished over 500. Um, as a fan, what's how do, you, how, how do you appraise the team now as compared to before? Well, it's it's much much better off now than it than it was a, a couple of years ago. Um, that's not necessarily saying a whole lot. Basically, um, what Neil Huntington inherited from from Dave Littlefield, the previous GM, was pretty much a disaster site. Um, where not only was the team uh, winning, not winning at the at the big league level, but I mean Littlefield was basically behaving for years as if the team would be contracted after the 2009 season. And a lot of the, the key players at the major league level were, were set to become free agents around that time. And you also had a, um, a minor league system, which was just in awful, awful shape, um, with only a, a couple of decent prospects and, and in just really embarrassing shape in the low minors. So... Huntington's basically had to, to come in uh, since being hired in, in 2007 and, and clean up this enormous mess, um, which which isn't like cleaning up a, a, a messed up franchise in, in football or something like that because it, it takes a long time to get guys through the minors. 
So, you know, if you would have asked me in, in 2007, if, if, if you were hired to be GM, what would you do? Um, I would have basically said, you know, trade all the, the valuable players at the big league level for younger players and spend a ton of money on the draft. And that's pretty much exactly what, what Huntington has done. So, you know, it, it's still a couple of years from, from being in, in really good shape. Um, because it just it just takes a long time to to develop a strong farm system if you're if you're basically starting from nothing, and I have questions about whether uh, ownership is going to raise the payroll um, if Huntington can assemble the core of a contending team. Is um, but, but let me interrupt here. Is you were saying that Littlefield was was acting like the team was being going to be contracted was that part of I, I i probably should know this was that was that part of the discussion was that a discussion that was going on at one point that the pirates might be contracted no they didn't know so, so he was they just, just, so they he was just, just had bad. a new ballpark that opened in 2001 so no there was no chance of that ever happening so he, so he was just doing a bad job yeah well he i i think he was just just trying to to preserve his job basically he he um, you know, he, he traded Brian Giles in, in 2003 and uh, traded a bunch of, of other players left over from the previous regime around that time and was starting to, to get uh, a decent, not great, but decent core of, of young talent through the minors also from the previous regime. And it just kind of came time where, you know, he had been around on the job long enough that you would start to ask questions like, when is this team going to be competitive? And I think he was was kind of able to, to satisfy the casual fan with with you know bringing in people like um, you know free agents like like Matt Stairs or, or Reggie Sanders and then later less successful ones like Sean Casey without really raising the the, the win total a whole lot and it, it, it just became apparent that he had not developed the team he needed to develop and so he was kind of you know frantically trying to hopefully build for an 81-win season um, to convince the casual fan that, that things had changed when, when really he had, he had not done too well. So, so um, as a... And so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, he, he just did not seem very concerned with the future of the team after 2009, uh, which is when Jason Bay and Xavier Nady and, and uh, Thomas Omarte and several other players would have been, would have been free agents. So as a fan for you, it, it, the, the sort of uh, state of the team that you're describing then, this is you know pre-Huntington, reminds me of uh, uh, Randy Jazierly's you know website, Randy on the Royals, where because that team is so it's just so poorly run, there's nothing that Randy could do except just you know mourn <laughs> mourn the, his you know the franchise that he once loved. Uh, I mean, how do you psychologically deal with that? You know, as a fan, where you just see your front office making poor decisions, not building for the future, how do you deal with that? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of parallels between the Pirates and the Royals over the years, and and yeah, I mean, what what I see them doing now with getting guys like Jason Kendall and Willie Bloomquist and Mike Jacobs, and just all these just totally terrible and pointless acquisitions yeah it's, it's kind of like you're right it's kind of like what the pirates are going through before and as a blogger that was really hard and I, i've had people say to me well you know being a pirates blogger around that time must have been really fun because you get to you know practice your irony and <laughs> sarcasm or whatever 
And that's true to an extent. I mean, occasionally it is really fun when, when the team does, I mean, on a certain level, when the team does something really bone-crushingly stupid to, to find some creative way to point that out. But, but you know, ultimately that gets really old. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if Littlefield hadn't been fired, I probably would have quit by now. I mean, it's, it's just, it was, it was too hard and it, it became not fun. Okay, so, so you didn't, psychologically, you didn't, I don't really know. You didn't quit, and you got Neil Huntington in charge, and he's had two years now, uh, but as you mentioned, the sort of overhaul that he had to implement, you know, is uh, something that started on, you know, the, the ground floor, where he really needed to mm-hmm. essentially create a minor league system, and, you know, that that's not necessarily going to make uh, the major league team better right away. I'm wondering even though the organization as a whole has improved, if fans in Pittsburgh, just from your general sense, are getting frustrated, even though uh, Huntington has implemented like pretty drastic improvements? Yeah, I'm, I'm, the, most of them are very frustrated. And, and to, to be clear about something I said earlier, I don't mean to, to frame it as if Huntington is some, some sort of savior or something like that. There's a lot of questions about him that remain unanswered. But clearly he's, he's much better than what was happening before. But yeah, it's 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 hard for for um, for fans to to see improvements in like oh the the low A team is is much better stocked with prospects than it used to be. That's not something that the casual fan cares about. What they care about is wins and losses at the major league level, and also keeping around players who they've become a, uh, attached to. So when when they see uh, a, a GM who's trading Jack Wilson or or Nate McLeod. For a bunch of minor leaguers, they don't really like that. So I wouldn't say that Huntington is a very popular person in Pittsburgh right now. Now you did a, a, a couple of uh, cool articles recently over at Bucks Dugout. You're sort of uh, speculating on the 25-man roster, what that might look like when the team breaks camp uh, in early April, begins the season in early April, I should say. You have kind of you've divided each post into two sections. One that you uh, regard uh, you know a group of guys you regard as the near locks and then you kind of uh you know add a couple names to that list you're sort of speculating as to the guys who will be filling out the roster you know the guys you give as near locks do you know they they make sense obviously and you're going to know this better than i do but there are some positions that i'm sort of interested in and i'm definitely interested in your opinion on how they'll shake down one thing i'm sort of interested in is the right field first base conundrum and Garrett Jones is kind of the guy who's problematizing that because he was really good last year. I think you guys also uh, did a community projection on Garrett Jones last year, and it's probably slightly more optimistic than his his shown projections. But he was an interesting player last year, and he's making Brandon Moss irrelevant maybe, and maybe also creating a space for Jeff Clement. How do you see that right field first base situation shaking down uh, as the season begins? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I'm well. First of all, Jones is going to occupy uh, one of those two positions. He's a guy who's in a, a kind of funny situation because he, he was basically a, a career minor leaguer of no real distinction before last year uh, when he started hitting fairly well at AAA, and then uh, the Pirates called him up and put him in right field. And he kept hitting really, really well, and it turned out he had 33 between the levels um, last year. Uh, so, you know... I was pretty skeptical about him last year, but at some point you kind of have to say, okay, 33 homers, that's, there's probably some element of, of real talent in there. So 
he'll understandably go into uh, the beginning of the season with one of those jobs. Um, defensively, it would probably be better for the Pirates to put him at first because he's not much of a defensive right fielder. But it, it looks like what they're going to do is put him in right field and start Jeff Clement at first, which is interesting because uh, Clement is someone who has uh, maybe some offensive potential, um, but he's not really a first baseman and has played very little first base, and we don't know how that's going to turn out. So I, I think that unless there's some kind of disaster in camp where it turns out that Clement just cannot play first base, that he's he's probably going to be there. Right, and then obviously that raises questions about the catching situation because Clement used to be a catching prospect. He was kind of considered fringy defensively, but maybe in sort of a Mike Napoli mold. He's the guy whose who's defense you could live with if you know if he was providing the sort of offense that was expected of him. You have Dumit there now, and I think maybe Jason Jeremio too. You know, I mean, oh God, Dumit was so good two years ago, probably with an elevated batting average and ball in play. Uh, Jeremio was someone who filled in in the meantime. How do you how do you see Dumit playing this year? And do you see Clement maybe switching down to catcher, or is that just a total impossibility? Well, Clement has has knee problems, which which I would I think at this point make a switch to catcher uh, unlikely. It, it's likely. I mean, he was like you said, he was sort of fringy defensively even even before um, that became such an issue. And and I've seen no indication that the Pirates plan to use him at catcher, which would be kind of cool if they were to trade Domit to to, to uh, install someone like like Clement at catcher. Um, I'm all about the uh, offensively minded catchers, but I I don't think that's going to happen. Domit, he's a uh, he's someone who uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that he was lucky on on. BIP in 2008. Um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me there, but he is someone who he batted 250 last year, I think. Um, and I think he can, historically, he's shown he can hit higher than 250. So I would expect, you know, some degree of, of bounce back, maybe not to where he was in 2008 when he was terrific, but he, he'll be, a, a, I think, a good um, offensively minded catcher. How's his health, uh, from what you understand? I, I forget exactly. Well, first of all, what what was he out with for so long last year, and is it resolved this year? Oh boy, <laughs> what was he out with? He he misses he misses time routinely for all kinds of reasons. Um, I, I don't even remember what his problem was last year. I mean, how, how well? What's the prospect of his health coming into this year? Um, well, I mean, theoretically, he's healthy right now, but I don't think. I can't remember if he's ever had like a completely healthy season where he doesn't go down for some reason. I think that the general thing with him is you kind of have to expect that he's going to play about 100 games um, and and hope that your backup catcher is, is good enough at, to, to sort of stick out the other two because he, he just never stays healthy and he has, he has all kinds of injury issues all the time. Well, now if you want to talk about issues, you guys have another... Uh, player on your team who's had his share, They're, they haven't always been injury-related, and that's Lasting's Millage. I understand that he's slated to be the starting left fielder, but, of course, you know, that's a question mark as well. What's been the news on Lasting's Millage? And, you know, I know you have a couple other outfield, um, you know, candidates in Ryan Church, maybe John Rayner, if that's how you pronounce his name, and then, of course, you know, Brandon Moss is a guy that we touched on briefly, Seems like they could all be candidates for that left field slot. Millage is starting. What's up with that? 
I, I haven't heard of anyone besides Millich being the, the starting left fielder, and I, I think that that's probably as it should be. Um, as you alluded to, he's had issues with his his mostly his attitude in the past, but since he was traded uh, to the Pirates from the Nationals, uh, we haven't seen any of that, and all the reports that we've heard about him since he became a Pirate were uh, Millage understands that you know he's now been traded out of two organizations, and that's not a good thing for someone his age. Um, and he's becoming more mature and taking himself a little bit more seriously and working really hard. So um, any you know problem with his, his any sort of psychological or, or problem with his attitude that that he might have in Pittsburgh will be his first. And I mean his upside is is considerable. I mean he's a former first round draft pick. He has he has all kinds of tools. And it's really to the Pirates' advantage to just stick him out there um, for as long as they can stand it, you know, to hopefully hopefully realize some of that potential. Okay, um, that's all excellent stuff. Now I'm going to switch gears. This is a, this is what we call in the uh, radio business the flawless transition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on the air today, too, uh, besides you know your considerable interest and knowledge of the uh, the Pirates and their situation is the fact that you have sort of an interesting biography, at least interesting to me, um, because it involves being a giant nerd. But it's not the sort of typical like mathematics, economics background we see here. You're, I guess you're finishing up a PhD in music right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at UC San Diego. Um, what has been, uh, what has been, I guess, your field of study within, within music, and what's been your sort of history with that uh, you know, I mean, up till the present. Uh, well, I'm I'm here to study composition, and um, I went to the College of William and Mary um, and with the intention of studying philosophy. And I did I did end up finishing the degree in that, but I uh, I had a really good, enthusiastic music teacher um, who was really idealistic, and you know, sort of really encouraged me to to go into that field instead. Um, so after after I finished college, I ended up apply, applying to grad school in music and and sticking around in that field, and that's where I am right now. And is it violin that you're studying? I mean, how does that work when you're getting a? I assume at a PhD level, it's you know it's partly research based, but is there? I mean, you said composition as well. So are you sort of working with instruments as well? Well, I, I play, I do play the the viola and the violin, um, and you know, kind of like if if somebody needs a sub for an orchestra gig or something like that um they can call me and and you know i do that but for 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 school i i study composition so i spend most of my time writing music uh and yeah i I write music for for instruments and does that does that require then uh, something like a like a, a thesis project then i mean do you have to give a performance or compose a piece of a piece of music for uh, your, you know, essentially for the requirement for your PhD. Yeah, um, I I had a 40-minute piece recorded last year, and that was my dissertation. So that's done. Oh, that's really exciting. So did you have to perform it, or you said it was recording? Yeah, it was. A, it was. It was probably too difficult to to put together a full performance of it. But yeah, I have a recording of all of it. Oh, where um, where can we find that? Or do you, you don't have to. Oh, it's uh, it's. it's that's at charliewilmoth.com. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that yeah. sort of thing is, is pretty interesting to me. Just in terms of um, in terms of the field of composition, what's what's particularly exciting for you right now? Uh, I mean, in terms of like names of 
composers maybe that you've uh, considered, you know, uh, who've informed uh, your aesthetic or that you might, uh, you know, suggest to listeners if they are interested in looking at um, some composers who might challenge them but also be sort of exciting to listen to? Um, you know, it's, it's always hard to, to assess what, what other people might be interested in, especially with, with something as, as arcane as contemporary classical music. I, I don't know. There, there's one uh, a European composer I really like named Beat Fuhrer, um, who does this this uh, music that's that's really repetitive and yet really uh, variegated and and it kind of sounds like if you if you took uh, a bunch of like Calder like spinning mobiles and you you they were different sizes and you set them all to be spinning at at, at different rates like what that would look like visually that's that's kind of what he sounds like. Um, is that is that a um, is that a friendly sound that that makes? A friendly sound. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's friendly to me. Um, I, I don't know if it's friendly to everyone, um, but it says something. I don't know. It says something to me about um, about the way we really have like machines all around us all the time. You know, we have we have things that make noise that sort of have their own agendas about the way they make noise, and they sort of surround us all the time when we when we walk down a street. Um, or, or something like that, and we don't even think of them as as musical sounds. But he kind of makes that explicit for me. Well, now I'm curious though, because the, you're sort of describing it on a conceptual level, and I guess one thing I'm always sort of uh, concerned about, or maybe even suspicious of, especially uh, when I see PhD, uh, and, and those are those are letters that'll be attached to your name, is I'm I'm always sort of interested in this bridge between the conceptual and the visceral. You know, so so I, I. It seems like you're. I mean, you're explaining it, and it, and it sounds very exciting on a conceptual level. But I guess I'm curious as to whether this is something that's a visceral experience for you as well. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, it it's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard music to to talk about in terms of the way it it makes someone feel, because the way it makes different people feel is is going to be so different because it doesn't direct you with the same series of like I don't know like cultural clues that that a, a piece of, of uh, a pop song uses to direct you you know what I mean um, so it, it's tricky that way but I think it really works on a visceral level also and I'm, I'm honestly not that interested in, in contemporary classical music that, that doesn't work that way that that is purely intellectual and I, I, I do think that that some contemporary classical music does to fall into that category. I mean, as a as a as a PhD candidate, does that is that something you have to come across where you're sort of navigating your own interests, or you know, with the interests maybe of um, other people in your field? I mean, I know that like you know, um, anytime you get sort of deep into to your own field, uh, obviously a certain amount of politics enters into it. But I guess I'm I'm curious as to you know maybe some someone is very excited about an artist and you just don't see it. I wonder how do you sort of bridge that gap, or do you just kind of respect that person's project and then move on? Yeah, I think you just kind of have to to respect it and and move on. And it, that's a that's a good question and it's a, a tricky question for me because. You know, honestly, I mean, contemporary classical music is—it's sort of a backwater. Um, and 
you know, I'm I'm kind of doing something within contemporary classical music that is sort of like a backwater of that backwater. So does that make it a front you know, water? Most <laughs> I, I would love to, and and, and I, I'm not sure I totally know how, um, but yeah, I, I think that that uh, there's a lot of people in the in the field of contemporary classical music who would who would listen to what I do, or even listen to a lot of the composers I'm interested in, and just say maybe that's interesting, but that's not for me. <laughs> well, so so I sort of cut you off. Uh, you mentioned I, I pronounce it one more time. It's Führer. Führer. F-U-R-R-E-R F-U-R-R-E-R Okay uh, So I cut you off though. That was the one you mentioned Who else uh, You know two, Maybe two Three other names That, that sort of get you um, Well I mean I think in terms of My long term interests uh, I, I really like minimalism Which is kind of A, a, a popular Subfield of, of Contemporary classical music um, I also I really like this guy Georgi Ligeti Um most maybe some of your listeners might know him as the guy who did some of the music that was on uh, Space Odyssey 2001, um, which is just this this really powerful stuff that that focuses on texture, but it has these unbelievable sort of moments of of drama where it's like he's sort of like picking you up by the by the collar and throwing you across the room. Um, and that's so a good thing. Yeah, for me, that's a good thing to be picked oh, up. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's really powerfully visceral stuff. Yeah, definitely. Some bullies in my middle school used to do that to me, and and uh, I I remember not wanting to repeat that. Right. No, this is a friendly toss across the room. Okay, I'll have to look into that. <laughs> so ligety. This is a very bad metaphor. Ligety. Yeah, L I G E T I. Okay. And give me. Uh, how about give me give me one more name. Um, okay, well, there's this, uh, this Greek composer, um, Giannis Dinakis, um, who, who, who did things that, that, um, the, the things that people talk about him doing are these, these very mathematical things. He had these very sort of mathematical processes behind his music. Um, but that's not what I like about his music. It, it, it just has this, uh, it's incredibly loud and incredibly brash and, um, just the the force of his personality is 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 really all over it. Um, not a disgusting yeah, so he, way. He's something. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. No, not in a disgusting way. In a very powerful artistic way. Uh, well, that's cool. That's fun. You know. Um, you know. And, and I don't know if I've said it earlier in this interview or not, but you know, w- one of the things that does sort of fascinate me about uh, the field of sabermetrics is that it tends to attract um, an interesting. Demographic. Uh, actually, a a uh, a study that I just just basically cited on the uh, FanGraphs website uh, by this guy Donald Levy, or maybe it's Levy. You know, I'm not. Uh, I don't know, but he's a, a sociologist. I think he, he was at University of Connecticut. Now he's at, I believe, he's at Siena, in which you know uh, he's sort of breaking down the demographics, but it's largely. Uh, it's largely college educated, and there are, there are I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty high percentage of people with advanced degrees, and I think a lot of bespectacled men as well. Although I, I'm not sure he mentioned that precisely. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I am wearing glasses right now, although I do sometimes wear contacts also. Oh, that, that's so so very vain of you. But but I, but I think that I think that you know we have people with with these these 
PhDs and things, you know, honestly, we have a lot of time on our hands. I, I think that's probably the overriding factor here. Well, actually, as, a, as an instructor at the community college level, the thing I always tell my students is get through your undergraduate degree as soon as you can because graduate school is the place to be. Uh, right, that's exactly right. Because you, yeah, you typically have more time and more funding and uh, you know, there's it's the the people you're surrounded by. You're, granted, you're not going to be best friends with all of them, but you know, om- with, almost without exception, they're going to have the same interests as you. And and uh, so even the worst ones aren't that terrible, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, I second that definitely. And yeah, I've I've, I've had a great time here. And uh, yeah, I don't know if, if if doing the blog to this degree would be possible without grad school. God bless grad school, and God bless Charlie Wilmoth. Uh, Charlie, uh, you know, thanks thanks a lot for joining us and in uh, speaking uh, articulately uh, both about baseball and about your your musical prowess. Uh, I do appreciate it. I hope our listeners appreciate it. If they don't, I'll uh, I'll sock them one. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you very much, Charlie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carson. Okay, great. And this has been another edition of FanGraphs Audio. Tune in early and often. Thank you very much. I thank Charlie Wilmoth for joining us here on Fangraphs Audio. Remember, Fangraphs Audio is available via iTunes or other feeder things. You can subscribe through the Fangraphs website. I'd also be remiss not to remind the listeners that Fangraphs Second Opinion for 2010 is available. The Second Opinion represents Fangraphs' first foray into the publishing world. It's available for the discount rate of $7.95. Once again, that's Fangraph's second opinion. Thank you for listening to Fangraph's audio. Until next time, I'm Carson Sestouli. Thank you.